This is the Boston Book Festival Virtual Edition. I'm Debbie Porter, founder of the BBF, and you are listening to one in our series of four audio memoir sessions. I hope you enjoy hearing from these wonderful authors, and I hope to see you next year in person. I'm Darren McMahon, professor of history at Dartmouth College and author most recently of Divine Fury, A History of Genius. I'm hosting this session on intellectual histories, the histories of writers, creators, and scientists as told by themselves. The memoirs we discuss explore the development of the ideas of three powerful thinkers whose creativity and insight span the realms of literature, human development, and computers. My guests are Claire Massoud, renowned novelist and author of Kant's Little Prussian Head, Howard Gardner, the father of multiple intelligences theory and author of A Synthesizing Mind, and Rana el Kayubi, computer scientist, entrepreneur, and author of Girl Decoded. I really hope you enjoy reading these three memoirs as much as I have. They're moving and inspiring books, and all are available for sale from bookshop.org, where purchases support a network of independent booksellers. Claire Massoud is an acclaimed novelist and critic. Her memoir is entitled Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write, an autobiography and essays. Two women. When my father was first dying, that's to say in the time we thought he would die, but he did not, the time when he made a belated and miraculous recovery and was returned to us like a character in a fairy tale for two years, three months, and five days, my aunt, his younger sister, tried to insist upon a visit from the priest. My mother, although diminished, as yet undiagnosed, she was already undermined by the Louis body dementia that would fell her, resisted valiantly because my father, at that time off with the fairies, as the expression has it, apt for the fairy tale like nature of the time, could not, and the priest was kept at bay. But two years later, when he was actually dying, fully and utterly presently himself, my father, my obdurate and fierce father, whose will we feared and admired in equal measure, could not resist his sister in her zeal, which is how he came in the nursing home reluctantly to take communion from Father Bob, the once-a-week visiting pastor in a baby-blue open-collared short-sleeved summer shirt, who, with short, plump fingers, unwrapped the host from a rolled hanky in his breast pocket, like a wee snack saved from lunch. Isn't there someone, my father asked me pleadingly, who could do this in French? Claire, I really have to tell you that I haven't read a collection of essays in a long time that I found so so affecting and so moved me. You begin with this passionate plea for art, and as you say, the time for art is now, and, and perhaps you could just sort of give some of those reasons as you do so nicely in the introduction, because I think they're really pressing. I, I can get quite worked up about the utilitarian nature of our current society, and I have a lot of anxieties about mm. it for the younger generations that are being raised to believe that things should be useful and important in recognizable and quantifiable ways at all times. And I feel that as a teacher, as I see fewer and fewer people majoring in English or in the humanities, for example, and I feel it as a writer, you know, when you speak to people about what they read and you discover that they only want to read things that they know they can get something out of. I am a great believer that in the immaterial superfluity, (laughs) in the fact that what is really most meaningful and life-changing and abiding in our existence is what cannot be quantified and what cannot be measured, and that this exists in human relations and this exists in physical experiences and that this exists in art. You invoke that nice passage from Valeria Liusella, her most recent novel, about losing our future uh, and then turn losing our past. And that's at risk when a society thinks simply in terms of utility. There's an essay by Paul Valéry from the 1930s. I I think he originally gave it as a talk. It's called in French, Le Bilan de l'Intelligence, the tally sheet of intelligence. And he's writing then with dismay about a time when the younger generation feels that the older generation has nothing to teach them (laughs) because of the advances in technology. And that the older generation, because they are unfamiliar with the technology, know nothing. And when I read that, it struck me, of course, 1936, you know, (laughs) in a very particular historical moment, it struck me as so true of the present 
when the technological changes have meant that I, I do think a lot of younger people feel that any experience that came before that or any books that were written before the, the advent of the internet <laughs> couldn't possibly speak to their experience and so and can be thrown out wholesale. Right. And I also say in the same moment, I say, if you return to the language of images, which is to say to the caves at Lascaux, the advantage is immediacy, but yeah. a lot is lost. <laughs> language brings us a lot that that images don't. Right. The title of the book is Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons I Write. This isn't a book about the categorical imperative, although you do point out that your father was a classmate of the great French philosopher Jacques Derrida. But this isn't a <laughs> book <was>. of philosophy. <laughs> this is far from a book of philosophy. Um, it's from a riff in Thomas Bernhardt about the fact that, that all that really gets passed on is a tiny fragment of what is. You know, in Beckettian terms, you know, fail again, fail better, can't go on, must go on. The radical inadequacy of communication does not do away with the urgency and power of communication. Mm. We're always failing, but we're not entirely failing. Bernhardt speaks of everything that Kant thought and then wrote, and that what's actually passed on to a reader of Kant is, I think he uses the phrase, a mere philosophical hue, mm. you know, is just a little, little bit of what was originally in the philosopher's mind. And I think that all the time about all of our experiences, that if you tell somebody, if somebody asks you, what did you do in this day? Or what, what happened in this day? Accurately to respond, you'd have to take a day. Right, right. <laughs> but you don't. You usually answer in a sort of sentence or two, but you might answer in five pages of writing. But it's always a distillation and, and much is lost. But that doesn't make it not worth it. I love your epigraph from Louise Gluck that you are not alone, the poem said in the dark tunnel, and that these hints of the effort at communication in great writers and artists make us feel somehow that we, we are connected and not solitary. I so feel that. And I really feel that for me, at least, the the literary experiences that I have, the most powerful ones, some of which, you know, date from when I was seven years old, hmm. those stories and those characters, they have traveled with me through life as much as my family, that I sort of rely on them. My imagination relies on them, but also my my memory relies on them. The wisdom of fiction is, and nonfiction, of course, but the wisdom of fiction curiously, is with me all the time. One theme that runs throughout these essays uh, is the, the theme of the search for home, and in some ways the futility of that search. And you have that lovely line from Salman Rushdie where you say that the past is a country from which we've all emigrated. We can go back in our minds, but not in, in fact. And yet you, you seem to want to try, uh, and crucial figures in your life and in the art that you're drawn to try as well. And, and, and Camus is a great example. As you show, he's somebody who's obsessed with a kind of uh, an image of home, which is his French Algeria, and wanting to go back there. And that was uh, at play for your father and for your grandfather and for you too. One of the developments of, well, I mean, for some communities over centuries, but but certainly over the 19th and 20th century, for far more people than was true before that time, before, say, 1850, diasporas of various kinds have come mm. to sort of define the state of the world. I, I can't remember if I mentioned in the, the Road to Damascus piece, I was there at the time of the World Cup, and, and at two in the morning, people were right. driving around honking their horns with Brazilian flags. Yes. I, I thought, that's so weird. Why are all the Lebanese people excited about the Brazilian win? And then somebody explained to me, it's the largest Lebanese community outside Lebanon is in Brazil. Right. Who knew, right? I, I mean, yeah. like the Lebanese people knew, but I didn't know. <laughs> right. You know, this country, the United States, is is a country that is made up of people who, for the most part, came from elsewhere. I mean, the actual treatment of those who came here from elsewhere, of the people who were already here, is another conversation. Right. <laughs> um, but it means that almost all of us have familial stories, even if they're some generations back, of the sense of what was lost. And I think there is always a sort of nostalgia or or sentimentality about what was lost, almost always, even when the present is much better than the past right. was. At the very end, you have a kind of throwaway line where you say, not having had a home, I wanted to give one to my children. And I took you to mean not having had a fixed permanent home because it seems that you've had lots of homes. And then that's one of the things that makes you who you are. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. We moved around a lot when I was growing up and my mother was Canadian and she was very 
proudly and profoundly Canadian. And if you have Canadian relatives or Canadian friends, you know that when you're proudly and passionately Canadian, it's to bedrock, you know. You know the that book, The Incredible Journey, a book for children about these animals who cross the country right. to get back to their owners. That was sort of my mother's <laughs> life's mission was to get back to Canada. She was taken to Australia. You know, my father took her to the other end of the earth and all she wanted was to get back to Canada. And my father was French, and, but he was Pienois. Mm. And more complicated even than just than being Pienois, he was somebody whose parents were Pienois, but his father was in the Navy. And my, and my father's childhood was spent before the war in various postings in Beirut and Salonika, uh, then back to Beirut. And those were his memories. His happiest memories were of places that were never home in any logical sense. And, and by the same token, my childhood memories, we were in Australia, in Sydney, from the time I was four until the time I was almost 10. And, and those were very happy memories for me. But I'm not Australian and I don't have any Australian relatives and and we didn't go back there. So right. it is very much that Rushdie sense that, that the past is, is a, it's a country I emigrated from. Hmm. We all do. But for a long time, I felt that my childhood existed in almost in my imagination. It was as if I dreamed it, that my sister and I shared this dream, but nobody else. Hmm. Well, you know, it's funny. I was going to ask you at, at one point a question that you pose, well, pose at the beginning of your essay on the photographer Salimán, and you opened by asking what makes a person herself and what if that person is an artist makes her the particular artist she's become. And it seems to me that really these essays are constantly posing or ruminating on that question vis-a-vis yourself. It's always this intersection, a vast and busy intersection of your innate temperament, the actual experiences you have over time. And then I do believe also the literary and artistic and philosophical uh, you know, encounters you have with writing and art. It's where you actually go in a day and what you actually do, but it's also the places you go in your mind. And I think the shape of that mind or the shape of that self evolves, but it also becomes clearer. There's a postcard that I keep on my desk that I love that is a quote from Wittgenstein, mm. where he says, at the age of 62, I've realized that I hate burnt toast. And all my <laughs> life, every time I've had to eat burnt toast, it's been a <laughs> bad moment for me. And then the fact is, it just takes a really long time to know yourself. Yeah. One of the things about this book, it is an autobiography and essays, but hopefully it's about me without being about me. I'm not that interested in me. I'm interested in the people around me mm. and the experiences around me. Right. You credit your mother with opening up to you the world of, of female novelists and showing you that the interior life of women can be a fascinating place for art, which of course it is in, in your novels as well. You list a whole number of, of female novelists that I, I wasn't even familiar with that you were reading in the, uh, in the 70s as a young girl and clearly had an important influence on you. Yes. I, I mean, it was a strange thing to to get to university in the 80s. It was not the very beginning of women's studies, but it was departments were still young. And to discover that my mom had sort of given me uh, the syllabus for intro to women's studies right. um, as a kid. Those were the books that she was reading and that she loved and that she passed on to me and that, you know, I thought they were cool because she was reading them. I say, you know, it's as if somebody took you to Paris and and took you around the right. some obscure arrondissement before they took you to the Eiffel Tower. Before I read Hemingway, you know, I read Jean Rhys. Right. Before I read Fitzgerald, I read Elizabeth Bowen. And then less well-known writers, because in the 70s was the moment when Farago Press which is a feminist press out of the UK, Virago Press started publishing lost classics by women. And my mother, I don't know if she had a subscription or if she just promptly went out and bought each book as it was published, but they had very distinctive dark green spines and covers and and she had them all and would give them to me or would leave them around the house and I would read them. And so I had this sense that these were the books everybody was reading. I, I didn't know that lots of people didn't even know about them. Hmm. In your art criticism, all the essays here deal with female artists, uh, and you clearly have a real interest in in figurative painting and, and portraiture. You write about Marlene Dumas and Salimán and uh, Alice Neal. But in that nice essay on, on Neal, you have a really perceptive account of, of the struggle in her art to be both painter and painting, right? To juggle being an artist uh, and a mother to young children. You credit her with eventually succeeding in pulling that off and call her an inspiration. And I can only imagine that you've felt much the same struggle uh, in your life. You know, when I was young, 
part of the narrative that came to me with those books by women that my mother introduced me to was this sense that women who wanted to be artists could not be mothers mm. and that the two were incompatible. It was a relief to realize that in actually my mother's generation, I could look at writers like Alice Monroe or Jane Smiley, who's a bit younger, or Carol Shields, and that those people had children and wrote books and seemed to do that fine. And it was a great revelation to me. But there's no question, just as there's a finite time amount of time for reading, there's a finite amount of time in every day and you're always making choices and you're always making sacrifices. Those can be hard, yeah. you know. In this country, in this time, we love cheerful endings and we love we love things to have a resolution. The truth of of experience is much more uncertain than we want to allow. And and I guess by that I mean that maybe it's not always possible to do what you want mm. and it's maybe not possible to do what you want and be a good person. Yeah. Maybe it's not possible to write all the books you want and always be a great parent or a great partner. Right. These things are difficult and, and abidingly difficult, and we don't know how it ends until it ends. Yeah. You write so movingly about both your mother and your aunt, who were fascinating women, but also tragic women, I think, in some ways, at least your aunt. You talk about the many things that they taught you, you and your sister, and at one point you write... They taught you and your sister that we should ask for and expect less, even as they encouraged us to strive for more lessons that seem quaintly old-fashioned now. You speak specifically about the joy and dignity of small pleasures and the gift of requiring less in order to find fulfillment. And it struck me how uh, strongly that contrasts with the kind of popular injunctions offered to uh, women and, and girls today that you satirize in that uh, hilarious, uh, but also scathing and, and mordant essay, How to Be a Better Woman in the 20th Century, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and much of that advice, I think, applies to men too, right? Be happy, be healthy, and above all, be rich. But clearly, from your perspective, there have been setbacks alongside the gains in terms of the kind of messaging our popular culture provides to young women. The perturbing messages are for everyone there, for women, young women, and and for young men. And they have to do with surface and appearance and optics and priorities and values. And But I sometimes feel that we, we have sort of thrown out the baby with the bathwater. There were radical changes to be asked of, of the society as it was 50 or 70 years ago, but that there, there were strengths that have been sacrificed. And there's a wonderful moment in Camus' notebooks where he talks about a conversation that he had, I'm going to butcher it, but it's certainly with Kessler mm. and maybe uh, Malraux and someone else. And he, of course, was a secularist, I'm not sure it's right to say he was an atheist, although he was probably officially an atheist. But he records in his diary that in the course of the conversation, he said to them, if we were to acknowledge that there is good and evil and a right and a wrong, would that not be the beginning of a hope? And I feel that that actually I'm with Kim <laughs> as with so many things. I, I'm with Camus. I'm like, just because there are a lot of problems, say with the Catholic church, I'm not Catholic, nor was I ever, but just because there are a lot of problems with the church or just because there are a lot of problems with any uh, religious institution, many of the teachings that come from many religions are actually humanly important and good ones. And we could not be in the pickle that we are in as a nation if we had not lost sight of those things. Mm. Uh, somebody was was asking me what's something anybody should uh, people should read before the age of 21 and and my answer is is Martin Luther King's sermons. We are in a time of profound moral crisis. Right. At times, you know, you you're very bleak. I mean, you talk about the present being from a certain uh lens, a dark maelstrom, a hellscape from Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, and you talk a little later about the onset of a new dark ages. And yet, I have to say, I came away uh, from reading the book feeling less dark with hope. So thank you for that. There's much that's light and amusing here. One of my favorite essays in the book is about your 
your dogs. It, <laughs> it hit home for me because I have a 15-year-old dog right now who, uh, like yours, is blind and deaf and incontinent. That essay, you know, it's a poignant essay, but it's it's also very, very funny. And clearly you loved your dogs uh, very much. <laughs> that dog is in that essay is no longer with us. You'll be unsurprised to hear. And what did we do but go out and <laughs> get, get on with get it. Another. Yeah. It's also for me a philosophical issue. This question of what is it to be a person on this planet, to be a member of a society, to what are our responsibilities versus what are we entitled to? And I think you realize when you talk about what people feel about dogs, and in that essay, I talk about the fact that as our dogs grew sort of old and incontinent, people would say, well, just have them put down. Right. To me, it wasn't that simple. It was such a, a rich and uh, energizing and, and moving experience reading these essays. And so I am uh, hugely grateful to you for, for that opportunity and the opportunity to chat with you. It's just been a, a pure pleasure. Thank you. And for me, and I'm so grateful to you for reading them and for reading them so closely and for talking to me today. Thank you. Claire Massoud's most recent book, Kant's Little Prussian Head, is available for purchase from bookshop.org. Ronel Cayubi is a computer scientist and founder of Affectiva, a pioneer in the field of emotion AI. Her memoir is entitled Girl Decoded, A Scientist's Quest to Reclaim Our Humanity by Bringing Emotional Intelligence to Technology. Well, Rana, it's just delightful for me to be able to speak with you today about your new book. And uh, I'm wondering when you first became aware of the kind of obvious point, but yet something we don't think of maybe so often that computers too can be placed on a spectrum of intelligences. And although they can be very strong in some areas and others, namely in emotional intelligence, they know very little at all. Yeah, exactly. If you look at the history of computer design and the focus of building, especially artificial intelligence, it's always been focused on IQ, right? Automation, efficiency, productivity. But what we fail to kind of realize is that when technology becomes so mainstream and so ingrained in every aspect of our lives, right, from helping us be happier individuals, more productive, healthier, driving our cars, assisting with our healthcare, like everything, it's not enough for these devices to just have IQ. It's equally important that they are built in a very human-centric way and, and understand people, right? Yeah. Understand how people, you know, express and emote. And for me, I mean, this pandemic has really underscored the problem, right? Because we've been catapulted into this universe where we are connecting with each other virtually for the most part, be it our teams, our families, you know, my kids are learning online, telehealth has become front and center. And if we don't design these systems with an ability to capture the nonverbal cues that we naturally use to connect and communicate with one another, these connections end up you know, creating an illusion of a connection. It's right. not a real connection. When do you think that first dawned on you, that kind of the absence in computers of this kind of intelligence? So I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in Cairo and, and in Kuwait and Abu Dhabi. But then I had the opportunity to move to Cambridge University to do my PhD. And it was really my first kind of living away from my family experience. And I remember there was this one evening, I was working hard in the lab. It was like dark, typical kind of gray England night. And it just dawned on me that I was spending so much time interacting with this computer, but it had absolutely no clue how I was feeling. I was feeling very homesick and lonely at the time. And even worse, it was the main mode of communication I used to connect with my family back home. And I just felt that all of the richness of our nonverbal communication, like my facial expressions, you know, I was in tears, but uh, my family at the other end of this text chat had no clue. Right. And it just dawned on me, like I started asking, like, what if computers could understand human emotions just the way we do? That incident was over 20 years ago. So yeah. it's been a long journey. I think most readers, men and women, will find this uh, a tremendously inspiring story, but really especially women, because one of the things you write about uh, is overcoming boundaries, juggling commitments, uh, achieving things that neither you nor yourself nor many around you, even with the best of intentions, believe that you could. To what extent is Girl Decoded a book for modern women and, and modern girls? People often ask me, why did I write the book? And at the end of the day, I wrote the book to inspire 
other people, especially women and especially young people, to have confidence in their own path and overcome inner doubt. I grew up in the Middle East where there are very kind of deeply ingrained cultural norms about what women can and can't do. I was very lucky in that my parents really supported, I have two younger sisters, so the three of us, they supported our education and and our careers, but it almost was like, there was this like implicit understanding that sure, we support you on your journey up to a certain point, right? Mm. So when I got married and then got the scholarship to go study at Cambridge, everybody around me thought I shouldn't go because my husband at the time, you know, he was running a software company in Cairo and everybody thought that I couldn't just pack up and have a remote kind of long distance relationship, except for my husband. He was the only one who said, you know, this is your dream. I won't stand in the way of it. Go do it. So I had to navigate that. I had to navigate that all over again when I was going from MIT to starting Affectiva and AI and technology in general is a very male, still a very male dominated industry. So again, I had to navigate raising money as a female founder. I've definitely kind of learned a lot in this journey of, yeah, how do you overcome and navigate these complex kind of deeply ingrained ecosystems and cultural norms? Yeah. It's funny, but you know, I sometimes say with any good idea, after the fact, it just seems obvious, right? And so now looking back, of course, computers need to have uh, Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, but it's easy to forget how high a hurdle that was at at the time. Absolutely. I mean, this was pre-smartphones, right? The technology looked very different. So I get it. I do believe in the last, you know, 10, I'd say more like five to six years, there's a much broader kind of acceptance of the importance of emotions in our life and particularly the role of emotional intelligence. And I actually think this pandemic is really underscoring that. Right. Absolutely. You write at one point, you say, I, I believe that technology can augment human potential just as people use canes or wear glasses or hearing aids to help them walk, see, or hear. An emotion prosthetic can help boost our empathy skills. And I love that term, emotion prosthetic. How can our devices be that? My book came out in April, so it was like right in the in the heat of the pandemic. So I had to pivot from doing all these real book talks and book events to virtual events. You know, when it was a real talk, you actually see the audience and you're able to riff off of that energy. You can personalize, right. adapt in real time, right? But online, I often didn't see my audience and it was really unsettling. I don't know if you've had that experience. Have you? I teach. (laughs) Talking into a vacuum, you know. (laughs) So imagine now if you had emotion AI and with people's consent and opt-in, what if we were able to detect the nonverbal signals? Are they engaged? Are they laughing? Are they perked up and intrigued, right? Are they curious? Are they inspired? And then somehow visualize that to the presenter. You may even visualize it to the audience so that they feel they're part of a shared experience like they would in person. That's an example of where emotion AI can be a superpower. It can augment your abilities, especially in a virtual world where you often don't have access to that information. Right. I mean, there are all kinds of applications, right? And these are happening as we speak. Early in the book, you say that computers are functionally autistic. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the majority of human-to-human communication is transmitted through our nonverbal signals, our facial expressions, our gestures, our body language and and inflections in our voices. That's a problem for computers, but it's also a problem for people with autism. Uh, And I know this has been a longstanding interest of yours, the way that you can bring emotion AI to the help of the autistic. Yeah. So uh, when I was kind of a fresh PhD student at Cambridge, I gave a talk to the computer science department. And I said, you know, this is this is my work. I'm like obsessed about training computers to read facial expressions. It's really hard for the following reasons. And somebody in the audience said, you know, my brother has autism. You really ought to look into that. And at the time, my focus was on improving human computer interactions. It was very kind of all about the machine. And the more I looked into autism, I realized that was almost an extreme example of where computer-mediated human-to-human interactions can be a lot better. We can bring in emotion AI and use it to help kids on the autism spectrum. So I ended up collaborating with the Autism Research Center at Cambridge. And then later on, the project that brought me over to the United States and to MIT 
was basically this idea of building a Google Glass-like device. This was way before Google Glass existed with a camera embedded in it. And the kids on the spectrum would wear these glasses and it would give them real-time feedback about face-to-face contact. Um, It would help them understand and read other people's nonverbal skills. So it was almost like a prosthetic or a coach for social skills. Right. You've studied the work of Paul Ekman and others who've made it their business to analyze the face and expressing emotion. And of course, there are universal features here at play, but there are also cultural constraints on how we express our emotion. And different cultures do that in different ways. That's clearly influenced the way you've had to perfect your algorithms, right? To be able to detect Mm -hmm. uh, smiles and emotions in, in different cultures. Yeah, that's another example where the diversity of the data becomes really critical and you wouldn't even think to do that unless you had a diverse team. But yeah, basically Paul Ekman in the 70s with his team, they published the facial action coding system, which is a method for mapping every facial muscle movement to a code. So for example, action unit 12 is the zygomatic muscle, which is what you use when you smile. Action unit four is the corrugator muscle, which is what you use when you knit your eyebrows. You don't want to do that a lot because then you end up with these wrinkles. <laughs> in your life. Uh, but basically he developed this training program. It takes about a hundred hours to become a certified fax coder or face reader. And then you watch these video clips people expressing themselves and you watch it in slow motion and you say, oh, I see a smile or I see a smirk and you code it. Very laborious, super time intensive (laughs) and, and not scalable. So instead we use machine learning and computer vision and lots of data to train computers to do that automatically. But again, the idea is to kind of recognize that, okay, by and large, facial expressions are universal, but there are cultural norms. I mean, we've seen that collectivist cultures like China, for example, or Japan, tend to not really express their true emotions in the presence of strangers. They don't tend to express negative emotions openly the way we do, say, in in North America or other Western countries. So we've had to develop benchmarks to allow us to kind of compare like kind of populations within each other. I mean, I find all this work fascinating because we've never been able to study the way humans express themselves at this scale before. And so I think we're kind of advancing our understanding of human psychology as well. Very much so. Do you ever find that information gets in the way in the sense that, you know, you're at dinner with a friend asking for advice and and realize that what you're being told doesn't correspond to the signs uh, admitted from the face? You know, do you like my book? (laughs) I actually, it's kind of a little scary, but I now see people's facial expressions like in slow motion. It's as if it's playing out at like a slow motion movie. It's kind of really weird. So yes, I have this heightened attention when a dissonance, right? When what they're saying doesn't really match their expressions or doesn't match their voice. Um, I'm like, hmm... There's a point in the book where you, you're writing about yourself as a student and you say that I wasn't comfortable expressing my emotions. And then you say parenthetically that I'm still not comfortable expressing my emotions. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm wondering, is there a way in which you got interested in making your computer emotion sensitive to read your own mind? And I think mind reader was one of the right. initial names for this. I mean, we all have a kind of fantasy of a partner who who gets it, right? Who understands right. us intuitively. And I'm wondering if that's at play to some degree here. You know, I've never been asked that question this way, but I think you're onto something. So for me, like expressing my emotions isn't about expressing my emotions to others. It's actually about like being true to myself, mm. right? That's the thing I I struggle with the most, honestly. It's like, how do I really feel? Strip out all of the expectations that people have of me and the expectations I have of myself. Like, how do I truly feel? And I struggle with that. Right. I just had a conversation with the novelist Claire Massoud, and she makes exactly this point of how difficult it is to to know oneself and what a long Mm -hmm. and kind of messy process that is. It never ends. So... Well, you're helping us in that process. You begin the book with this sensational case of a group of teenagers in Central Florida a number of years ago who watched a a disabled man wade too far out into a pond and then drown to death without lifting a finger, save to record it on their cell phones. And you go on to speak of an empathy crisis in our current world. And I think many would argue that, that social media 
uh, mm-hmm. amplifies and exacerbates such a crisis and maybe has even helped create it in the first place. And if people are the problem, how can AI help us to overcome it? Our technology platforms are exasperating the issue, to your point, but the solution has to come from us. Like We are the ones who are designing, developing, and deploying these technologies. And to me, this is why we need more diverse and inclusive voices around the table so that we build these technologies with the human in in mind, like human first, right? Like we need to redesign our social media platforms so that they incorporate the natural way by which we communicate. 90% of how we connect and communicate is non-verbally. Only 10% is in the actual choice of words we use. Yet, if you kind of dissect computer-mediated communication, it's primarily text-based still. right? So we need to be able to capture these nonverbal signals so that You know, when I'm tweeting at you something that's really mean, I know how it falls on you. Right now, I don't. I can just put it out there and it's hurtful and it polarizes people, it dehumanizes people, and I don't know the effect it has on others. Very different, again, than if we were in the same room and I said the exact same thing to your face. Right. Maybe I would probably think twice, right, before I do that. And we need to replicate that in our online virtual worlds. You strike me as an optimist, and optimism is a virtue, particularly for entrepreneurs. But you recognize very well that the technologies that that you're developing have all kinds of nefarious potential, right, on mm-hmm. uh, on the part of marketers or criminals or states prepared to abuse the kind of information that emotion AI can yield. Do you worry about the dark side of the effort to endow machines and the people who control them with the power to discern how we feel? I do. To your point, technology is by and large neutral. It's how we design it and how we deploy it is how it ultimately gets used. So I've been very vocal about the transformational potential of this technology in automotive and road safety and mental health and all these amazing use cases. But I've also been pretty vocal that this could go terribly wrong if we're not careful. And we veered away completely from applications where this technology could be used in surveillance or security or to discriminate or profile people. But we didn't stop at that. At some point, I realized I almost have like a, a moral responsibility to be like the custodian of, of the because we because we kind of we were the innovators. We started this field. And I, and I feel like it's incumbent on us as as AI innovators and thought leaders to educate the public and show the world okay, this is great because of the following reasons. It can go wrong because of the following reasons. Let's make sure, let's guard against these scenarios. You make the point towards the end of the book that yes, AI is going to really dramatically transform life as we know it, and there are going to be displacements, but it will also put a premium on the human Mm -hmm. because human skills will be more valuable than than ever. AI can do what non-humans can do, but not what it can't. It's just been a a delight to talk to you. So best of luck going forward. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ron L. Cayubi's book, Girl Decoded, is available for purchase from bookshop.org. Howard Gardner is an acclaimed psychologist and cognitive scientist. His memoir is entitled A Synthesizing Mind, a memoir from the creator of multiple intelligences theory. So, Howard, there's an irony right at the heart of this book, which uh, you're well aware of. You say early on, a little like an actor who gets typecast for a certain role and is always remembered for it, you are, like it or not, the father of multiple intelligence theory, despite having written over 30 books and hundreds of articles on, on many different subjects. And you love to be talking about those other things, but people always come back to multiple intelligences theory. Uh, yourself included. (laughs) Your book begins with it, uh, and it's a major theme throughout, and it just seems as if you can't quite escape it. I'm very grateful to multiple intelligences because it did give me a microphone, which I wouldn't have had without writing about intelligences. And I discovered shortly afterwards that if I wanted to talk about anything else, people said, oh, you know, we want to hear about multiple intelligences. So I came up with a scheme where I would say from multiple intelligences to creativity or leadership or good work and use multiple intelligences as the entry point, but then 
focus on what I really wanted to to speak about. But I think it's a statement in part about the idea, which I think is powerful, but it's also a statement about our society. I would say particularly American society. We're a place of, of buzzwords and of ways in which we hang a label on somebody. And I'm content to be the MI person, even though the purpose of this book is to call attention to what I do, which I call synthesis. So the book is a kind of intellectual memoir. It's not so much a biography, although you recount a good deal about your life in it, but you really focus on the origins of your ideas and on the analysis of your own mind uh, in an attempt to explore and understand your own particular type of mind, your own particular type of intelligence. And you think of yourself as a synthesizer. Explain to us a little bit more about what you mean by that and why you feel it's a strength. I've actually realized for about 40 years that synthesizing is what it is that I do. It's just a word that uh, came up rather naturally. And then uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, when I talked about the kinds of minds which I want to cultivate in young people, I listed synthesizing as one of the five kinds of minds that I thought was very important. But it's only with the writing of this memoir that I really kind of took a microscope to what it is that I do and try to make it explicit to myself and hopefully to other people. I consider synthesis to be between journalism on the one hand and experimental social science on the other. Now, journalism, of course, a person is given an assignment or makes an assignment to himself or herself, and there's a deadline and you get together whatever it is you can, try to bring in new information unless you already have your mind made up, and then you finish the story and you move on to something else. What I do is take on projects for which there is no particular deadline, and I have boxes of papers for five or six years of stuff that I collected for a book, and they never got finished because there was no deadline, and I couldn't set right. a deadline for myself. On the other hand, I'm trained as an experimental social scientist, a developmental psychologist. I did my share of experiments in the first 10, 12 years of my postdoctoral work. And I was able to get published in the the right journals, and I had some moderately interesting ideas. But I realized that unlike most psychologists, I'm not an article person, I'm a book person. I take on big things, and I want to write about them with the capaciousness that big topics require. So then what it is that I actually do, and what I do is I read very widely, I may collect lots of data in the case of a, a book on colleges, which was actually sent uh, off to a publisher in early September. Um, we have did over 2,000 interviews. I read every single one of them. We coded them and quantified them and did big data analyses on them. So I have no aversion whatsoever to being uh, empirical. But uh, since I'm studying human beings, how what our species is like, how we think, how we act, how our minds are organized, uh, how we learn, and so on. I don't ever think that I'm going to be giving a definitive scientific conclusion like the atom is such and such, or DNA is such and such, or um, the the, the cause of COVID-19 is this particular uh, gene and enzyme and protein. I'm coming up so to speak, with the best account I can at a certain time. And paradoxically, Darren, if the account is good and it catches on, it actually changes the way society thinks about things. Yeah, I love that that uh, point that you make, that the value added, as it were, of, of being a synthesizer is the ability to change the conversation. One of the points I've tried to make in a synthesizing mind is that as we get more and more focused both in our research as scholars and our teaching as people who have standardized tests and short answer instruments and so on, and we're always looking for a number, so to speak, synthesizing may get lost in the background. We won't think a lot about how to help people become good synthesizers. And it's my own hypothesis that synthesizing is going to be one of the last things that computers are going to be able to do. Because when you synthesize, first of all, you have to decide what an important question is, and that's a value kind of judgment. And then you have to collect data, and no question that we have very powerful uh, algorithms for collecting data. But then 
you have to both make sure that there isn't some bias in the data that you introduced. But then finally, when the data point in a certain direction, that doesn't tell you what the right thing to do is. Again, that's a human value judgment. So I would say the human beings at the beginning, uh, sort of at the preface and and at the epilogue of the actual analysis of data is something which I think the human mind, at least for the foreseeable future, is going to be needed. And it would be very sad if in the effort to get the algorithms as perfect as we can. And we all benefit, uh, even even as we're all penalized, if we can be found to do something improper. Um, I don't want to lose track of what I think human beings are particularly capable of doing, and that is right. synthesis. To some extent, of course, this capacity, at least in you, was was innate, but clearly the kind of education that you had was extremely important in, in developing this capacity. And, you know, you, you, you write about your early introduction and, and a very serious interest in music, your love of literature from early on, early interest in pedagogy and practice of, of education. But then you have this extraordinary education in high school and, and then in the Department of Social Relations at Harvard, where you were an undergraduate, which really allowed you to pursue an extraordinarily eclectic education. You said one word which got my attention. You said, I have an innate capacity or proclivity for synthesis. You're right in the sense that this is something that I began to do at an early age without, as it were, thinking much about it. But we don't really know whether it's innate or not. We don't know whether right. if I had an identical twin that uh, he or she would be a synthesizer as well. And I think you put your finger in what's the more important variable, which is what was the atmosphere like in my family, in my neighborhood, in the schools I went to, and then particularly when I went off to college, uh, now uh, 60 years ago, uh, Harvard College. There, there was an opportunity to read widely, to talk widely, to write widely. In my generation, which in many ways was a lucky generation, but also in many ways a very biased generation, nobody asked, you know, what's your job going to be? Nobody asked how much money you're going to make. These questions weren't in the atmosphere, maybe because we took them for granted, maybe because we were too stupid to to think about them. So my friends all investigated what they were interested in, whether it was, uh, I had a roommate that did math, another roommate that did biology, I had roommates that did history and literature. And we, we talked about this the same way you would talk about what restaurant you went to. We used to joke that I set the record for the most audited courses. I was like a kid in the candy store. It wasn't that earlier in my life, anybody had kept me from reading what I wanted to read. And in fact, I was one of those kids who did read encyclopedias, God forbid, for fun. I just I just read them. But suddenly, you know, I got a course catalog. Of course, it's physical in those days. And there are courses and fields that I haven't heard of. And now I might well say, well, what's the return on investment? And will this get me into business school? Will this allow me to do a startup? But I didn't. I said, no, I'm interested in Chinese art. Let's take a course in it or let's audit a course in it. And I did. I guess what what you're hinting at, Darren, is that you're not likely to be a synthesizer unless you have a chance to wander widely. It's sort of wandering in an undirected way and then finding out, well, what interests you? And then it slowly gets directed. And maybe at the end of the day or the end of the month, you've got a problem and say, no, I really want to focus on that problem. And then you focus on anything that's relevant, but you push off stuff which you're quite sure is not relevant. Well, that's a wonderful endorsement for the value of uh, a liberal arts education. You've clearly had extraordinary teachers and mentors uh, all the way through from childhood to adulthood, which reaffirms their importance in society. I like to make a distinction between mentors and paragons. It's a bit of jargon. Paragons are people whom you may never have met, but who have a lot of influence on your thinking. And two of them in high school are worth mentioning. One is Richard Hofstadter, a great historian. I would have loved to meet him, but tragically he died at a very young age. But his his books, particularly the American political tradition, had an enormous impact on me. And the other was Edmund Wilson, who was a great literary critic. And the way he wrote and the things he wrote about were just enormously influential on me. And when I was a graduate student, I actually invited him to come and speak at my house, Quincy House at, at Harvard. And I got what I learned was a letter that he sends to everybody. It has a card and it says, Edmund Wilson regrets that he's unable to. And then he lists a bunch of things and he just makes a check mark. And (laughs) even though I don't save things, I saved the envelope. And then when Google made signatures available, I looked it up. And in fact, this had been handwritten by 
Edmund Wilson himself, and I reproduce uh, the card and the envelope in the book, along with a letter with another person whom I invited who didn't come to speak at Harvard, Groucho Marx. <laughs> right. And nowadays, <laughs> you would assume that Groucho just had a research assistant or a secretary do it. There's no question that Groucho did this himself. It's much too personal. And both of those letters are cherished items. But to get to your question, the people who influenced me the most as, as an undergraduate were psychoanalysts. Eric Erickson, who was a, a student of uh, child development and of developmental psychology. And even though I only got to know him at the end of my studies in college, David Reisman, who was a great sociologist, wrote a book which was for many years the best-selling sociology book in America called The Lonely Crowd. It's a great title for a book. And my wife, Ellen, when she was in the end of grade school, disobeyed her parents and went to a party that she wasn't supposed to, and her parents sentenced her to read The Lonely Crowd because, of course, <laughs> one of the arguments of The Lonely Crowd is that we're all in the middle of the 20th century other-directed. We, we don't make our own opinions. We were not inner-directed, which is what Reisman admired. We're other-directed. So those people, both because of their writings and because of their interest in me and their support of me, were very important in my undergraduate years. In my graduate studies, they were two completely unpredictable people who ended up having enormous influence on me. One was a philosopher named Nelson Goodman, who in 1967 started a research group called Project Zero. I was a founding member. I've been with Project Zero ever since, 53 years. I'm the, now the, the senior director of Project Zero. And we study education, beginning with education in the arts, but now all kinds of education, and we try to give it a push in the right direction. And the work on multiple intelligences, which the book focuses on, came out of my work at Project Zero, related both to Nelson Goodman and to the other um, mentor, a neurologist named Norman Geshwind, who Nelson Goodman and I decided to invite Norman Geshwind to speak at Project Zero about 1969. And it was one of these life-changing experiences. Geshwin talked about artists who'd had strokes. I'd never had any interest in neurology or in neuropathy. But when an artist has stroke, something can happen that can either destroy an artistic ability or spare it. And all of a sudden, brain-damaged individuals became an experiment in nature one done by God or by a, an accident. And you could see whether music is connected to language, whether visual arts are connected to bodily abilities. And I spent 20 years working in a neurology unit uh, inspired by Geshwind. And it was the combination of my work with children in the arts at Project Zero and my work in a neurology ward with Geshwind and his colleagues, which uh, gave me the ideas which led eventually to multiple intelligences theory. You make note of the fact, Howard, uh, in the memoir that, that your eyesight is not good and, and never has been. You lack stereoscopic vision and, and so only see through one eye at a time. You're colorblind and, and you also are prosopagnosic, meaning that you can't recognize people by their faces and, and, and recollect their faces. And I wonder to what degree that too has, been, has influenced the kind of turns your own intelligence uh, has taken. I was conscious from an early age of my visual problems. And I think I probably tried to compensate for them. My doctoral thesis was on how people see style in paintings. And that's clearly something that you pick out if you can't see very well and you want to fight against your illness. And I also have worked for many years with the Museum of Modern Art, been on the board and so on. So I think there's a certain compensatory aspect. Maybe if I had great vision, but, but couldn't hear very well, I might have become involved in music. There's a, there's a certain <laughs> obstinacy in my interest. It's important to find out where you have your competitive advantage and not to insult yourself by working in areas where it's too difficult for you. But in your spare time, it's absolutely great if you focus on things that you're not very good at and try to get better at it. But uh, both in discovering that uh, I should be more person of the word than the person of the eye, which is what a reader and writer is, um, and in uh, deciding that I shouldn't uh, spend my life doing visual arts kinds of work, but rather music, which is what I do uh, every day, um, I, I was playing to my strengths. And I think it makes you 
um, a more fulfilled person. It raises very interesting questions with respect to kids. I have four children now, five grandchildren. And of course, you know, it's easier when you have um, generations that have your particular mental profile, but it's also very interesting when they don't. I have a line that I like to use. When I had one kid, I thought everybody had the same kind of mind. When I had two children, I said, well, there are two kinds of minds, like extrovert and introvert. When I had three kids, I said, all minds are different. That's the MI view, multiple intelligences view. When I've had four kids, I said, I have to hustle so much to get enough to send them all to school. I don't have time for any (laughs) theories. But a reason why multiple intelligences theory is easy for teachers to resonate to, and also for people who have lots of kids and grandkids, is you learn immediately that it's very superficial to align everybody just in one particular dimension. You describe yourself at several points in the in the memoir as an iconoclast. And I don't think that'll surprise anyone who has any knowledge of how iconoclastic it really was to challenge the notion of unitary intelligence and the IQ as a as a single governing factor. But it strikes me too that your iconoclasms articulated a profoundly democratic understanding of human beings' potential, right? That we all have strengths, they're not all the same, but we all have value. In that respect, it seems to me that your message was not only right, but right for the times. You told people in the public what they were ready and and what they wanted to hear. That's a very considerate thing of you to say. It's not something that uh, I really thought much about before. But, you know, at my stage of life, I think a lot about my family and my my parents, who I give them always a straight A, they were wonderful parents. They both had a very strict social conscience. I remember, for example, and I don't mind saying this, that uh, when my sister went to uh, Girl Scout camp, my mother insisted that she room with a, uh, a black girl, uh, we would have called a Negro then, a woman of color. And there was a sense of fairness that was very deep in my family. Probably that impacts both what I spent 25 years on, multiple intelligences, but also what I write about at some length in the book. My last 25 years have been spent on what it means to be a good person, a good citizen, and a good professional. And again, it's not just what gets you ahead. It's doing the right thing. I would say I'm a quiet iconoclast. I don't like to get into clashes. And the few times in my life that I've had to publicly speak about things, it's made, it's made me very uncomfortable. But in my in my writing and in the things that I choose to work on, there is a there is a moral or ethical slant without question. So Howard, you uh, cite at one point the Nobel Prize winning physicist Murray Gelman, who uh, was the founder of the the Santa Fe uh, Institute and interested in synthesis. And he says that that in the 21st century, the most important kind of mind will be the synthesizing mind. And I'm entirely inclined to agree, but I worry about the challenges to synthesis today. I mean, already in the the 1930s, Jose Ortega Gasset was writing about the barbarism of specialization. Uh, And if anything, that's only gotten worse. And although we have powerful synthesizing and aggregating tools today, the work required to be a competent synthesizer is staggering. And I I wonder if you foresee a situation in the future when uh, our need for synthesis increases and yet our ability to deliver it uh, diminishes. Profound question. Like it or not, we live in a global society. And that means even if we do terrific synthesis about energy here or about voting rights here, uh, if it isn't worldwide, nuclear energy climate change, all these things, uh, it becomes worthless. So yeah, no, the press for good synthesizing, not just uh, locally or nationally or regionally, but globally is is greater than ever. Um, I'm not at all a critique of well-functioning algorithms. We may even have algorithms which themselves produce algorithms. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure for any question that's uh, important, like you know, what's really going on with COVID, with the disease, with the spread of it, with the various vaccines, and so on. We're going to use all the computational abilities that we can. But it's already well known that uh, you know, if there if there are biases in the data, uh, those are just going to be reflected in the output. And even if the data are as whistle clean as they can be, I'm not willing to let either the issue of what do we look at or 
what do we do at the end of the day when we get the findings? I'm not willing to download that on, on some kind right. of an application or some program. And, you know, even if I were, <laughs> we would then end up having the Chinese version, the Hong Kong version, the Japanese version, the Brazilian version, the Hungarian version. We're not going to, you know, they're, they're, the United Nations is not going to, the World Health Organization is not going to succeed in mandating the mother of all algorithms. So uh, as far future the future as we can look, which is certainly 100 years, we're going to need to have what I called many years ago trustees, people whom we have confidence and faith in to do the right thing, even when it's not in their own self-interest. This is a notion that's almost completely lost in American society now. Whom do we trust to create and to judge these algorithms? That's a very big issue. Thank you so much, Howard. Really just pure pleasure for me. Okay, very good. Howard Gardner's most recent book, A Synthesizing Mind, is available for purchase at bookshop.org. Debbie Porter here. Thanks for joining us at the Boston Book Festival, where we celebrate the power of words year-round. Sign up for our newsletter at bostonbookfest.org, and we'll keep you posted.